Hi, and welcome to the RCH Kids Health Info podcast, the podcast for parents about common child health concerns. I'm Dr. Anthea Rhodes, paediatrician and your host for today, and joining me is my friend and colleague, Dr. Lexi Frydenberg. Hi, Anne. Today, we're going to be chatting all about snoring, and I don't know about your household, but definitely this is an issue in my household, not me, of course. We've got a fantastic guest joining us today, Dr. Eric Levi, ear, nose and throat surgeon, so stay tuned if this sounds like it's something that is interesting to you. From the Royal Children's Hospital, Melbourne, this is the Kids Health Info Podcast. So, Lexi, as I said, snoring's a big thing in my house, not to name names, but husband and eldest child. What about at your place? I didn't realise when I had my firstborn nearly 18 years ago that kids don't usually or often don't snore because my firstborn was so loud that when he was in his own room, we'd have to shut his door, shut our door and put earplugs in. And I just thought it was normal at the time. I've learnt a lot in the last 18 years. But it wasn't until I got a call from childcare when he was two years of age to say, do you know your son stops breathing when he sleeps? And then I realised it was time to actually look into this snoring a little bit more. And was that the sort of awkward doctor-parent moment where you think, oh, God, should I have noticed something before now? Absolutely. It was the time I thought, well, I've read the books. I know what, you know, snoring and sleep apnea is and I actually hadn't picked it up in my own son. So and it was quite common. severe. So common. And you do find, I know when I looked at one of my little ones thinking, how is a noise that big coming out of a child <laughs> that small? So as you say, though, it can be serious. And importantly here today, we'd like to talk about how you know when you might need to worry about snoring in kids. So as I mentioned, joining us, we've got a great guest, Dr. Eric Levi, ear, nose and throat surgeon here at the Royal Children's Hospital. Welcome, Eric. Thank you, Anthea, and thank you, Lexi. This has been an amazing thing. I've always been listening to your podcasts and uh, see you guys as real heroes in this place, uh, sharing information. So it's really nice to actually have this chat. So I feel really honoured to be here. Thank you. Thanks so much, Eric. And we have to say, we are big fans of you as well. So for people listening, you may have come across Eric already. He's on social media, has posted some amazing, helpful videos and blogs, both on TikTok and on Twitter. So you can catch some of his other information information on there. I thought you were going to say he knows noses. We hope you know <laughs> noses, Eric, because you're here to help us all That's know right. about noses. Yeah. So maybe let's get started with that big question, yep. and that is about snoring. Why yes. does it happen in kids? If you think about it, our airway that begins at the top of our nose, at the tip of our nose, sorry, that begins at the tip of our nose and all the way down into our lungs, is a dynamic um, air passage. And there are 7 billion of us on this planet. So there's, there are 70 billion, um, you know, various uh, permutations of what the nose, the oral cavity, the mouth, I mean, uh, and the throat actually looks like. And so therefore, anytime there is any resistance or floppiness in that area, snoring happens. Um, normally, we would expect that we'll have a quiet breathing when we sleep, a restful, deep sleep. But when we sleep as well, our muscles relax. So the tone of the soft palate, um, the tone of the tongue, the tone of our neck kind of flops a little bit and the muscle uh, becomes a bit more floppy and that's why we snore. So snoring in itself is potentially a, a sign or a trigger or for us to actually look a little bit deeper in our children's sleep. So we often you know, think about snoring in adults and many of us have partners who might snore, but it's less common in children. So in kids, what is the main reason that there's 
there were children who snore. We think that about 10 to 15 percent of children will snore at some stage. You know, you've known them, you've seen them. Kids who have an upper respiratory tract infection gets a bit congested, they get a bit snorty, and they snore. But about 3 to 5% of children will have sleep apnea. And this is probably the first thing that I just want to say, that there's a difference between snoring and sleep apnea. Snoring is that sound that you make, but you still have continuous breathing throughout but sleep apnea is when you have pauses in your breathing. And that's actually the one that we want to look um, a little bit more carefully about. So snoring may be the trigger. So, But for me as an ENT surgeon, the interesting is not the snoring that I'm interested in. It's actually the pauses between the snore that I'm actually more interested in. It's the silence that no breath, no chest movement. That's the one that I'm actually more worried about. Yeah. Okay. And because the word apnea means no breath, doesn't correct. it? Yeah. That's so correct. that's really that particular cause of snoring that means something else more serious is going on and we'll talk a bit more about that in a minute. So it sounds like Eric lots of things can make you snore. The air moving in and out of that passage coming up against resistance or narrowing might generate noise and that's pretty much what snoring is. It's a bit like if you've got something stuck in the vacuum cleaner it's going to start making a sound. That's right. Okay and you mentioned kids might snore when they have a cold. Yes. Can you tell us a bit about what about when they have allergies? Yeah, that's challenging one, always differentiating the two. Let me just take one further step back to have an overall view of sleep disordered breathing, okay? In general, there are behavioral disorders such as, you know, parasomnias, insomnias, all those sleeping behavior difficulties that are completely different to what we're talking about today. So that's like sleepwalking, sleep talking. That's right. That's right. And so that's a whole different um, uh, um, sleep disorder that is different to what we're talking about today. Today we're talking about any uh, obstruction along the passageway of the breathing. And so that's the apnea part. And in fact, there are two kinds of apnea. One is this thing called the central apnea, where the brain actually does not regulate regular rhythm of breathing. But the one that we're really talking about today is the obstructive sleep apnea, where there are some pauses or restrictions of breathing. And so therefore, your child may actually have that simple primary snoring during the times when they're having the allergic season where their nose is congested or when they've caught a common cold or viruses from the childcare or school and their nose gets congested. That's when it happens. And it's often quite challenging and um, to know whether the nasal congestion that your child has is due to a common viruses in the environment or whether it is actually due to COVID virus I- in the environment. And that's something worth thinking about as well. And so if there's a change in the way that your child breathes at night uh, that is different, uh, that's something worth looking into. You just mentioned there, Eric, something that I do want to pick up on. It's aside from snoring, but how you tell the difference between a blocked nose from COVID and a blocked nose from allergy or a different type of virus. I think the basic answer to that is we can't fully (laughs) tell the difference. Um, When your child has a snotty nose, yes, it could be allergies. Yes, it could be common viruses or it could be COVID. So in this particular time uh, right now where we are, I think I would be recommending that if your child has got a snotty blocked nose, that you be doing your rapid antigen testing at home and then following that up either with a PCR depending on the results of your rapid antigen testing. With allergy, it's often more prolonged. It's not just for a few days here and there and offered it's triggered by pollens or the environment or other things called house dust mite. So even though the symptoms, the nasal congestion may be the same, 
it's the company it keeps. And with allergy, often they have the sneezing and the itchy eyes and the watery eyes, and they might have eczema, a skin condition, and asthma, a lung condition, which is all related to allergy. So I think it is really hard for parents to differentiate, but there are a few clues along the way. And we'll add some information about nasal symptoms related to allergy in our show notes. And that's that's an important thing as well, and you're absolutely right. We're seeing an increase in infant rhinitis or allergic rhinitis in the younger age group as well. So we're seeing kids younger and presenting even more severe as well with nasal congestion. And there is often an allergic trigger to it. When the nose and the nasal passage gets obstructed, either due to increased mucus production, swelling of the nasal turbinates, or enlargement of the adenoid around the back of the nose, that's when the snore might start to happen. Okay, so that's a good point, I think, Eric, for us to get back onto that snoring topic. And you've mentioned a couple of things there that I think will be really important to explain to parents. So the turbinates and the adenoids. The nasal turbinates are basically just small bony cushions inside our nose. It comes from the side walls of the nose Mm -hmm. into the actual mid part of the nose. And the turbinates are actually lined with what we call tissues that can swell and reduces in size. Believe it or not, we have a nasal cycle. One side of the turbinate will get enlarged and two or three hours later, the other side get enlarged. Now, when you add allergies or viruses into it, those turbinates get really, really swollen and it starts to block up the nasal passages at the front. Adenoid is at the back of the nose. Essentially, you've got lymphoid tissue the tonsils at the back of the throat and the adenoid is at the back of the nose. They are the primary thing. Whatever you breathe in, you, we breathe in hundreds of liters of air every single day, and all of those things go past the turbinates and past the adenoid before it gets down into the airway. So all these dust particles, pollen and grass just lands on the airway, and therefore if the adenoids don't like it, they will swell, they will produce some mucus. There's always a question about do they fight infection? The basic answer is actually tonsils and adenoids don't really fight infection. What they do is they act like a classroom. They capture the antigen or the allergen or the particles from outside and then the white blood cells and the immune system meets at the adenoid and they produce all of these cells to fight the, uh, to, to, to understand or to recognize these cells, but they themselves don't really fight infection. It's your immune system, it's your white blood cells that actually does the fighting. So I often get asked, oh, what do you do, you know, when with the adenoids and the tonsils, do kids get more infection if you remove them? The basic answer is when the adenoids and tonsils are healthy, we leave them alone. But when the adenoid and tonsils become the source of the disease, becomes an obstruction, causes poor sleep and poor health, we need to deal with them. Okay, so the reason we're talking about this now is so if there's inflammation or swelling of the turbinates, the adenoids or the tonsils or all three, your child might snore and might have an increased chance of having what we call sleep apnea. And so for parents listening, what would the signs be that this might be happening? When should they worry, if you like? Parents sometimes undercall, underappreciate the severity of what happens at night. They see changes during the day, so we divide that into daytime symptoms and nighttime symptoms. What I'll be recommending parents, if they're worried or they're thinking about the child having snoring or sleep apnea, is to pop over into their rooms and watch how they sleep. Do this a few nights, over a few nights. You know, sit and watch and listen for a few minutes and see what the child does. Some of the things that I'll be looking out for is the position of the child sleeping. Some kids with big adenoids and tonsils or big turbinates might have an obstructed breathing, so what they naturally will end up doing is opening their mouth and arching their head back or their neck back. So when they sleep, arch back. 
mouth open, that's the first few signs that, well, there might be an obstruction somewhere. If they're really restless, if they're really sweaty at night, uh, that might be another sign as well. And of course, the noise. When you have the snoring, the degree of snoring, the, the, the duration of snoring, those things do matter. We go through several different stages of sleep. And so there are certain times of the night when we're really at most relaxed and that's when the snoring might be loudest. And it's just worth noticing that sometimes that happens in the first couple of hours when you start sleeping. And when you've mentioned this, I've just thought back 18 years to when my son had his snoring and he had absolutely all of these. He yes. was sweaty. He yes. was had his head back. He was yes. sleeping on all fours yes. to try and get some air in. Yeah. And as a parent, as a first-time parent, I wasn't aware of that. So I yep. think that's really helpful. Yep. The other thing I often ask my patients to do is to try and video their child sleeping yes. and bring that video in because even watching it can be really helpful for us. That's absolutely right. And and we are uh, we are looking not just for the snoring or the severity of snoring, but actually specifically for those pauses in your snoring. It's when the child goes and then going quiet for two breath cycles that's an apnea spells and that's what we actually want to capture so when you have more than one or two apnea spells or more than one apnea spells per hour that's actually considered abnormal or not healthy and so what you end up having is a child who tries to go in, in enter a deep sleep but keeps waking themselves up multiple times through the night it's like what happens when your sleeping partner knocks you in the elbow <laughs> and just wakes you up multiple times an yeah. hour you get a pretty fragmented and poor sleep and therefore your following morning becomes horrible and this is what the parents see and in the morning they might be really really exhausted they don't look like they've had a good sleep behavioral changes during the day poor attention at school all those things become the daytime symptoms and oftentimes parents only notice the daytime symptoms and because unless you actually visit the child at, at in their bedroom you don't actually notice the severity of that nighttime symptoms and we know with kids there's lots of reasons why they might be having different sorts of daytime symptoms like difficulty with behavior or difficulty with learning and I have often found with families it's not until after they've had surgery to correct uh, the problems with sleep apnea which we'll talk about in a minute then they notice the change in their child and then they say oh my goodness all of that I can now see was at least in part due to the problems with sleep. are concerned as parents about this, what's our next step? Okay. These are some of the things that I'm thinking in my mind if I was to see a parent who brings their child to me with, with snoring. I'll be interested in their videos and their pictures of their child sleeping at night so I can get a gauge of the severity of the nighttime symptoms. I'll be asking parents about their daytime symptoms as well. And then I'll be obviously examining the child. I'll be having a look at their turbinates, looking at their tonsils. If possible, depending on the age of the child, I would do a flexible endoscopy to look at the adenoid size. Can you explain what that is, Eric, for people listening? That's right. So it's a tiny little spy camera that is about 2.5 millimeters that goes into the nose so we can image the back of the nose or the size of the adenoid. Now you can imagine kids between the age of about two to seven are probably not going to let me put a long flexible camera into the <laughs> nose. So in that kind of situation, sometimes an x-ray might be might be necessary. So just to clarify, so most doctors, GPs and yes. pediatricians, we can't look at the adenoids. That's right, and yep. 
parents can't yes. see the adenoids, yes. Yes. you need an ear, nose and throat specialist to have yes. a look at these adenoids. Yeah. But not every child needs an ENT specialist. Um, depending on the kind of the problem with sleep or behavior, you might see a pediatric sleep physician, you might see a pediatrician, uh, or you might see an ENT surgeon if the problems are specific to tonsils, adenoids and turbinates. So Eric, can you tell us a bit more about when you might need extra investigations. Most of the time, this is something that the history and examination with the GP or a general paediatrician really makes it clear what's going on. Are there situations where you need something else? That's a great question, Anthea. The the basic answer to that question is not every child requires a further investigation. Most of the time, the diagnosis can be safely made by your GP, general pediatrician, or an ENT surgeon, or any other pediatrician such as a sleep pediatrician. The key thing is just understanding the severity and the impact on the child. Most kids, we will know their severity, and therefore the right treatment such as nasal spray therapy or surgery might be warranted. Some kids, in a small number of kids, some further investigation might be done, such as a measurement of oxygen overnight at home, or a formal sleep study where you come into a sleep lab where a lot of measurements are taken. But those are very specialized studies that are reserved really for a small number of children. And this is where we as ENT surgeons have the pleasure also of working with pediatric sleep physicians in some situations whereby we try and tease out more specifically um, the cause or the reason behind their sleep apnea. Okay, and so... Tell us about what that treatment would involve, Eric. We talked about snoring, so we obviously want to know where the obstruction is. If the obstruction is in the nose, then there are simple things that we could potentially try without any surgical intervention at first. So nasal spray, both saline or salty water sprays to clean up all of the allergen in the nose, or a steroid spray. There are several different ones uh, that your GP, your pediatrician, can prescribe um, as a trial period for about four to six weeks to see if this nasal steroid spray could actually help reduce the size of the turbinates and the adenoids. And some studies have shown really good results that it reduces by about 50%. But of course, the challenge is getting a child to have nasal spray every night is challenging. (laughs) I mean, I've got two kids in in my household who do have allergic rhinitis, so allergy that swells up inside their nose and an adult, not me. That's right. And the hardest thing is getting them to actually stick to using the nasal spray. And when we do, and when we're having a good run, we see the benefits. It definitely works for us in the household. But the hard thing is sticking at it. So what sort of tips have you got for parents about that? So again, a lot of educational videos are out there available. Essentially, the simple thing for the child to remember is that we're not aiming up towards the roof. We're actually aiming towards the turbinate that goes back and Mm -hmm. also the back of the nose where the adenoids are. So really almost aiming towards that ear uh, going flat around the back of the nose and just one squirt on each side every night for the nasal steroid, breathing that in and then that helps to reduce the size of the turbinates and the adenoid. The saline spray, you can use it a lot of times. I've got three kids, my middle one tend to get a lot of nosebleed and nasal congestion and so we have a simple rule in our house that we can actually do the saline spray uh, when you come home from school to clean the nose after all of the things that you've inhaled in school and then in the evening using the nasal steroid spray. So getting that 
technique right, obviously, yes. and then also just sticking to it. Correct. Easier said than done, but really important. Correct. And the other thing is that it doesn't work immediately. You do need to use it for at least two to four weeks to see the effect. Uh, a lot of parents say, oh, we tried it for three days, it doesn't work, and so they stop trying. And that's, that's, that's not effective. You do need to go for a few weeks before you know the difference. And so I tell parents, go try this spray, see how they sleep this week, and then about six weeks from now, have another reassessment of how they sleep. And most people actually find that there is good effect. And studies have shown as well there's an additional four-week of effect even after that as well. So you could potentially try six weeks on and stay off it for about three to four weeks and see whether or not the effect actually lasts a bit longer there. And just to put a plug in for prevention, yes. often particularly with allergy, it's really important to know what are the triggers for your child and their nasal symptoms. So is it dust mite? Yes. Is it pollens? Because there are things you can do to limit the dust mite load in your child's bed and bedroom. Yes. So we don't want to just treat the symptom. We yes. want to actually look at why the child might have the symptom. Totally agree, Lexi. Yes. So nasal spray and things you can do to reduce allergy in those symptoms when do you need to think about surgery as the next option? That's right. So we've spoken about spectrum. So of course, the severe children will benefit from surgery. And again, studies of studies have shown that the benefit of adenotonsillectomy with or without turbinate surgery has been shown to have about 60 to 80% success rate. Remember as well that this is also not just a spectrum, but the life stage of a child. Adenoid and tonsils are largest around about the age of two to eight. Okay, so that's about the period of time when we actually see a lot of kids getting their surgery done. But that doesn't mean that when they're 12 or 14, they might, you know, they might not get blocked again because of a deviated septum or sinus disease or other things like that. And that's the reason why adenoid and tonsil surgery is not a permanent fix you know, there are other risk factors, obesity and when the child gains weight. So if you had your tonsils and adenoids done at four, it doesn't mean that at the age of 12, there might be other health issues that might actually bring back the recurrence of the actual uh, sleep apnea. But I often get asked the question, can the tonsils grow back and do the adenoids grow back? Yeah. So if you've had tonsillar surgery or adenoid surgery and the symptoms, the snoring comes back, do the parents need to worry and go back to see the ENT? Uh, that's a good question about reassessment. So the first question that I ask when they ask me that question is, how was the tonsils done? So there are several different techniques. So firstly, the anatomy of the tonsils, it's in a capsule. So when the tonsils are completely removed with the whole capsule being removed, so that's a tonsillectomy, the tonsils won't grow back. However, there are newer techniques nowadays where they do partial tonsillotomies, where a little bit of tonsil tissue is left behind. So yes, therefore, in that situation, there might be a risk of recurrence. The adenoid tissue at the back of the nose is not in a capsule, so you never quite completely 100% get rid of them. So there'll always be some adenoid tissue left behind. Regrowth might not mean reobstruction. So some might regrow without obstruction, so we might not need to do anything. Often it is a bit of an ongoing journey, isn't yes. it? Like, And what you're really trying to do for children is reduce those effects yes. that are um, impacting their sleep and then all the flow-on quality of life problems yes. and physical health problems from yes. the um, apneic episodes in sleep. Yes take that away so yes. that the child is healthy and well, but it doesn't necessarily mean the end of the story. Correct, yeah. Okay. And it's that a life stage as well. You know, you want your kids to really be learning and, and picking up lots of new stuff. They're learning so much in that age group and we want to give them the best sleep they can have so they can do the best learning during the day that they can do. I absolutely think as a paediatrician that the nasal issues, the snoring, the yes. sleep quality is the most underrated issue yep. and I ask about it nearly in every patient yes. and it's incredibly surprising how few of us as parents 
watch our children sleep or know what's going on. So I think that brings us to a really important point, Eric, to talk about. And that's, you know, getting that surgery done when it's needed um, as soon as you can. And I know from lots of patients that I've seen and friends and family and people listening, it's been such a stressful time over the last couple of years where a lot of this type of surgery has been delayed. And there might be parents out there thinking, oh, I already know all this. And, you know, I really feel like I need this to be done for my child. So what sort of advice have you got there? Yeah, I really empathize with all parents. Um, um, you know, prior to the pandemic, 12,000 tonsils get done in Victoria every year. And um, and the numbers uh, are, have been de- reduced because of the COVID pandemic. Uh, so I empathize with that. We do have plans to try and increase our capacity uh, all across Victoria. Um, but yes, it is always a challenge. So once you've met a pediatrician, a sleep pediatrician or an ENT surgeon, and the direction is towards adenoid and tonsil surgery or turbinate surgery or an assessment, and you're put on a wait list, there are things that you can do while you wait. General sleep hygiene or sleep health is one important thing as well that that, that we can go into in a whole different podcast on its own. Um, so trying to regulate your child's sleep and trying to maintain their general health and well-being. So we've spoken about allergies, so that's great. Tackling the allergies is one big thing that we can do. The, the, the saline sprays, the steroid sprays, uh, controlling the environment as much as possible. Sleep routine or sleep hygiene. We also know nowadays that the invasion of screens in our lives has really affected us. How many of us have been doom scrolling at night on our Guilty. bed looking at screens <laughs> and and that interrupts our sleep as well and that's what happens to children as well you know when the children have got a lot of screens they might not go into that deep sleep rhythm that their brain needs so we have a rule in our house that you know an hour an hour and a half before sleep all screens are off and I'm the one that continuously break that rule unfortunately yeah. so uh, sometimes you need to lock those screens particularly right. from you Eric away <laughs> in another room and, and and so just having all screens off and going to sleep in the same room at the same time in the same bedtime routine is important for our kids as well and that would help improve the quality of their sleep and I guess the thing I would say there for parents as well is if you are worried that things have changed or, or things are worse for you and your child, then go back, revisit, see the GP again, get another referral or go back to your specialist and have the conversation. And that's really good to, to, to bring that up, Anthea, is that this is could be changing over time. So you, you might have a child who have very mild sleep apnea and then because of an illness or something or, or the allergy season, they turn into that severe group and then over time they might turn into that mild to moderate group again. So you don't have to feel rushed or be guilted into having surgery rapidly. But at the same time as well, you want to be able to reassess six months, 12 months down the track uh, how your child is going. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Eric, for so much advice and wisdom today. It's been fantastic. I know I've learned a lot. It sounds like Lexi Lexi will be able to sleep better at night for a variety of reasons. Thank you. Do you have any final messages out there for parents? I think all I want to say is that we're all going through a difficult time wherever we are. And so our own sleep health is affected. So do pay attention to your own sleep health as well as parents. Um, But yeah, pop into your child's room and just have a look at how they sleep. And the gift of sleep is a beautiful gift. And of course, if we can offer that gift to our kids, you know, why not? We want them to sleep well so that they can have a good day. Fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us, Eric. My pleasure. It is my pleasure. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode and you found it helpful, please share it with a friend or your family and subscribe to our podcast.
As things are always changing with COVID, a reminder that this information is being recorded on the 22nd of February 2022. Information provided in this podcast is general in nature and is intended to support, not replace, discussions with your doctor or healthcare professional. If you are concerned about your child, please consult your local healthcare professional for further advice.